You are now listening to Bookish. The canon continues. The podcast that's dismantling the sacred secular divide with your host, Michelle Collins. Welcome back to Bookish. I am your host, Michelle Collins, and I'm kind of excited. This is going to be interesting. I am sharing the microphone today with another person, which is not so unusual in and of itself. However, it's the person I'm sharing the microphone with. Many of you will remember. So I'm going to introduce her and then I'm going to have her just for, you know, tradition's sake, offer us a back of the book bio and introduce the book that we're going to talk about. So with no further ado, uh, the person sharing the microphone with me today is none other than Miss Danielle Kingstrom. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having Yay. me on. Of course. Yes, this is surreal. We it are, is. <laughs> we are back at square one where we started. Right. <laughs> and it feels also familiar and okay. <laughs> it does. It does. And I'm actually really excited to talk to you about this book. And yeah, it, it's a good book. It is a great book. And I, yeah, I remember when you were discussing it on one of your live podcasts. And I was like, that's my book right there. Because <laughs> sex, right? Sex, right. God, and yeah. rock and roll. Well, exactly. But now before we get to the book and we introduce the book, you have to do the back of the book bio. I mean, I know a lot of listeners know who you are, but you still have to do it just in case. Who I am? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, about I, you, what you do, all your what, fun stuff. Okay. Well, um, I am also a podcast host of Recorded Conversations, the podcast dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in an authentic, connected dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I kind of I grew that from bookish, actually, um, right. because I wanted to continue along the lines of inspiration. And what inspires me in my life the most is conversation, but also talking about bigger ideas that we find from books. So right. currently that's what I do. I'm also a blogger uh, for Pethios Progressive Christian, although I've been told I'm not very progressive. So, <laughs> <laughs> According to whose definition? <laughs> you know, that's the thing. Everybody has a different definition. So I know in my, in my own path, I see it as progressive. It's ever changing from where I was originally. Okay. And then I am also an erotic embodiment advisor. And what that is, is a fancy term for sexual relationship coach. Okay. And And that's new. That's pretty new, right? It's pretty new. And yeah, but it's really fun. And I am working with several clients right now. And it's all about just helping people understand their inner sexuality and bringing out their full erotic selves. We I think I want to give back um, substance to the erotic and to the mm-hmm. eroticism component of our lives. And I believe we do that by, you know, digging deep into our sexuality, into the core of who we are and figuring out how we navigate that along with the other dimensions of our life, the physical, the mental, the spiritual, the emotional. And mm-hmm. I, um, I actually depend on more progressive deconstructionist thought to help me actually do that. So it was interesting. I decided to go for it after I had worked with a life coach. I'm sure you know him, Jamal Javanji. I do. Yes, I do. Yeah. And he kind of planted a seed, I think, just for me to want to help other people. And then I've worked with other coaches and other therapists along the way and felt like what they're all doing is very particular, but nobody's really focusing in on what does my sexuality mean and what does it mean to be a sexual being? And That's just always the thing that I've been most curious about in my life. And so from Mm -hmm. there, 
I advise others. I listen mainly and just kind of right. the most interesting thing. And I'm sure you find this to be true as well is sometimes people just need space for someone to hear them. Absolutely. Yeah. I think and, so too. And in, in almost everything, but certainly within that genre, I would imagine. And that's an incredibly difficult topic to navigate and have someone listen to because sex is still very taboo yeah. and still a topic where we are still filled with shame and guilt when we talk about it. And there's so many societal expectations. So mainly what I do is I just help people see that we don't have to sit within these expectational boxes and we can ask ourselves questions about what we really want, what we really desire, what we fantasize about. And through doing that, we, we can continue along a, a reconstructing route of our lives. Right. So that's, I think that's really interesting because I think that goes along, you know, along with the idea of deconstruction, which of course, everybody, we all talk about all the time, mm -hmm. it feels like. Um, but that is an area like that kind of seems pushed to the wayside in, in our traditional thought. Um, yeah. because as you said, there's so many sexual taboos surrounding it. Um, you know, and, and conservative ideals that were raised to believe purity culture and whatnot that, that disallow us to ever discuss that or, you know, explore it. And so when you're suddenly questioning everything you believe, it seems like a natural extension then to begin to question your sexuality and your ideas about sex itself and eroticism. Mm -hmm. That just makes sense. So I think, I think it's a, a really, I think it's a really interesting area. And I think there's a lot of topics out there, like you said, even for people that seem to have moved away from religious idealism, so to speak, mm -hmm. they still are kind of hung up um, and uncomfortable with certain sexual topics. Um, yes. And I'll, and I'll cop to that. I am on some things. On other things, I'm like, no, let's get it out there and start talking about it because it makes sense to me and I'm curious. So. <laughs> yeah. No. And I hear you on that. Me too. I mean, in, in going through just kind of my own erotic epiphany too, I've come to realize that oh, I'm not as open-minded as I thought I was. And oh, I do have anxiety sexually about certain things. And yeah, yeah, I myself struggle with fear of expressing fantasy and desires because you we, we do, we have this all these different constructs. And if you have this fantasy, this must mean this about you. And so we're like, oh, well, I don't want the person I love to think that right. about me. So I'm not going to talk about that. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And I mean, aren't, isn't that kind of something you're looking at too, from for the, the sexual view and what you dealt with and what you struggled through? It's, it's an interest for me for sure. Because, um, again, coming from that deeply conservative religious background, uh, it's not discussed. It's, it's pushed to the side. You're told to be a good girl, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, which of course translated into, you're not supposed to have sex before marriage. And then we're not supposed to talk about sex. Yeah. Um, and, and of course that's unnatural, um, mm. you know, in our, in our, in the evolution of our growth, it's unnatural because people are sexual beings, but we repress that for so long. So yeah, it was something that I really struggled with. Um, and because I have a background of sexual abuse, it, there's yeah. a lot of areas there that, you know, had always seemed off limits. And so now I'm, I'm much more open about them. I'm much more apt to discuss them and, and to ask some pretty hard questions and in all honesty to experiment a little bit more because how do I know? Yeah. I, I have no, I have no experience level with something. So how would I know unless I tried? Yeah. You know? And then, so then you have to take away, of course, the stigma of guilt that goes along with that or shame associated with it. 
Mm-hmm. And that, inc- and I'm sure you know this as well, that involves uh, your partner being somebody that's open to understanding that as well, or it's a no-go. Yeah, it is. And yeah, that, you know, especially with your partner, your partner has to kind of be on board with you in something like this mm-hmm. too, which is something we don't really even consider. Like, why does my partner have to be on this with me? This is right. about me, but it's like, <laughs> well, it's about the relationship. Right. But I mean, I mean, I'm sure you've seen that too. People who go through a religious deconstruction, it can break a marriage. It can break down oh, yeah. a relationship because it does dig at that. Sur- it digs at the surface of sexuality. I think mm-hmm. in a lot of aspects, especially when you start talking about like, you know, Rachel Held Evans and Nadia Bowles-Wapper both had addressed as well as this, that puritanical idealism that was attached to our religion and sexuality. And when you start pushing against that, it's easy to go, yes, I reject it. But we forget that We can physically and verbally say, I reject that belief now, but those previous beliefs that we were influenced still impact how we relate sexually. And if we don't keep digging it back out and go beyond just rejecting it and truly embracing what is right for us, then that creates another conundrum within that whole deconstruction avenue. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of where I come in and yeah, it's all deeply. Things. Well, that's good, and I think I think that's absolutely necessary. Well, within the field of psychology itself, I mean, you have sexual sex therapists. Yeah. Um, because it is something that is a part of our psyche. It is, you know, a I don't know. I guess it's a basic human need. I I'm not it sure really if that's is. accurate or not, but it seems like it is. I want to say Maslow had like at thrown that in there too, or maybe it wasn't him, but it was. And I'm trying to remember to him. Too. But it was added as an additional component, but you can't have that full sexual actualization until obviously all of your other needs are met. So it's kind of right. at the tip, but yeah, I mean, it's deeply important and we brush it to the side like it's not. And so, yeah, anyway, it, anyway. It's, it's good though that like then books like this come along right. and there's right there, get back into I like how slowly but surely I see more and more books that are relating sex and God together. And it's like Mm -hmm. in the mainstream. And now we can normalize conversations about it just a little bit more. Right. Well, I mean, it seems like an obvious thing. I mean, God created us. The Bible tells us God created them male and female. He created them both. So, you know, and that's obviously how you procreate. So why wouldn't that be a part of the conversation as it pertains yeah. to God? And yet it has been so adamantly excluded um, traditionally and, and made to be something dirty or ugly or hidden. Yeah. And just, or, you know, yeah. and I don't know. And I think the problem with that is that repression actually leads to some pretty bad things. Um, yeah. When we try and shove down our sexuality, we, of course, end up, it's, it's going to happen. You know, you're going to express it at some point. And it's probably, if, if you're considering it ugly or shameful, it's going to be something that you experience or express maybe in a negative way. And yeah. that only perpetuates a further cycle of guilt or shame. And then, so you it's, can, yeah, yeah. And you keep covering it up because, you, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's a devastating cycle. And it's like, well, the only way we can break it up is to finally expose it to the light. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it is a good segue to this book. So why don't you go ahead? This was a book. You're, you're right. I had mentioned it in a Facebook live and said, Hey, I have this book. Who wants to discuss this book with me? And you responded to that. Um, so why don't you go ahead and introduce the book? Um, and I also know that you interviewed the author of this book on your podcast, correct? 
I did. I did. Yeah. So the book is Sex, God, and Rock and Roll, Catastrophes, Epiphanies, and Sacred Anarchies by Barry Taylor. And Barry Taylor is, so he got his start, like his, his first claim to fame was like, he was uh, touring with ACDC when they were first coming up. Mm -hmm. So he was a part of their, their setup crew, their stage crew. And so from there, his life just kind of catapulted into connections with fame. And after all of that, he went on to become uh, a pastor. He attended seminary and now he's a full-blown theologian and he's a teaching professor um, we're at the Fuller Theological Seminary and, um, is also interlocked with art and design. And he's just a really phenomenal guy. And yeah, I did interview him and he's awesome. And this whole book is just basically his memoir of what he experienced and how he sees God reflected in all of it, right. which I just really appreciate. And it goes in line with that canon continuing because that inspired yeah. text is, God, ref God reflected for us to understand what God looks like. And again, he's showing us through his perspective. Here's what God looks like. So awesome book. And, um, I can't wait to just start talking about it because like every chapter I was just like, God, this is so freaking good. Yeah. I <laughs> so <laughs> I know I thought it was um, obviously the title catches you because as you mentioned yeah. before, not many people are discussing God and sex in the same book. Um, so the title catches you, but when I started reading it, I was like, I had the same reaction. I'm like, this is, there's a lot of really great insight here. Um, he, he breaks the book up into four separate sections, you know, uh, the first being the biological or sex, the second, the experiential, um, drugs, uh, the creative or art, and then the spiritual religion. And I loved how he did that because he had these like almost mini essays under yeah. each of those that really kind of pulled out a little bit more information with regard to that subject matter. And, uh, I, I found so many little things and highlights in my book, of course, is all marked up and yeah. you know, dog haired as usual. And so I don't know, where do you want to start? Let's, let's figure out a place to start. First of all, can we say the man had such good taste in having Pete Rollins do the forward? Oh, I don't yeah, know if you like yeah. Pete Rollins. But. Um, I still have yet to read him, but I know you're <laughs> a fan of him. And when I, I started am. reading the forward, I was like, oh, she's going to like this. Yes. <laughs> I yeah. love Peter Rollins. I love it. Well, I like listening to Peter Rollins talk, but, um, because he's Irish and I just dig that accent, but he's, he's such a big thinker and he's pointed out things before in some of his books where I'm like, whoa. And I've been on, you know, spinning on it for a while. So again, it was, it was great that he included Peter Rollins. I was very impressed by that, but let's, let's go on beyond that and start into what he's talking about. Um, so where do you want to start? Well, um, I really appreciated the drip feed of erotica da data or yes. of erotic data. Let me say that again. The drip feed of erotic data. <laughs> so I loved that. Um, but at the same time, there were a couple of things that he was just kind of presenting. And I told him this, too, that just I went, eh, I didn't like the, I, eh, that rubbed against eroticism the way I didn't like it. Hmm. Um, but then he did explain it a little bit. I still think we're in disagreement on it, but that's okay because not everybody has to see it the same way. Right. And, um, but the, what I really particularly loved was, um, he talks about, well, he gives credit to the French philosopher Alain Baidu mm -hmm. and praise of love. And he says that all sexual encounters are ultimately an encounter with ourself. Right. And I often feel that that's what eroticism is all about. Ultimately understanding that, um, you know, there's only one 
And we are actually seeking the reflection of ourself and other, but we're still seeking that unknown other, not realizing that it's just the unknown us. And I thought that was just kind of a beautiful parallel of a similar thought. Um, But where I think I took issue was the way he views desire. And a lot of people do this and they separate desire from love where I would say like my mindset is like, but you can't have one without the other. And so sometimes desire is overused in Mm -hmm. a negative sense that I just don't like. And so I think that's what I've come to understand it being used as. Nonetheless, um, the part that stuck out that I really didn't like, but I still kind of agree with is (laughs) the part where it says desire fetishizes the other partner, especially their physical attributes. But as Baiju says, love focuses on the very being of the other, on the other as it has erupted, fully armed with its being into my life that it is consequently disrupted and refashioned. Mm -hmm. And I see that refashioning and reorienting and readjusting throughout his book. Mm -hmm. Like, so I kind of appreciated that pattern, I think, but I think the reason I have issue with desire overall is because people look at desire as that negative devil that Mm -hmm. creates the addiction or makes you do the wrong thing or leads you towards sin or whatever it is. And I think I'm trying to um, refashion desire in a positive way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's it. Like, that was the one thing where I was like, I'm gonna have to talk to him about that because I don't <laughs> like that because I think we, we, we still just don't understand desire. And so I don't like the negative connotation that it has. And it was just a nitpicky Danielle thing, really. But <laughs> otherwise, where he talks about love is the revolution and mm-hmm. that it's about energy. That is, you know, that seems to be like this common mantra that's coming up in kind of this conscious, um, yeah. lens of love is that it's this energy and there are these different frequencies that we should pay attention to operating on. And so that just kind of spurred that whole idea there for me, just how love is this energy. And I think oftentimes we look at love as like this action or this phase or this not phase or this like feeling we're supposed to be walking and feeling all the time. Right. Right. Instead of seeing it as an energy and maybe even not always constant. Right. I love the idea of love as a frequency. I'm I'm very much interested in the in the idea of frequency and the different things that it's used for. Um, so I I like that. And that does you're right, it does lend credence to the idea that maybe you're not feeling it all the time because maybe you're just not vibrating at that frequency, right? Mm-hmm. At that moment. But that frequency is still there, it's still available. And, and I like that idea. I think we've been taught over and over that, like you said, love is a verb, you know, yeah. uh, love looks like something. It's an action. We've been taught that there, there is this outward expression of love, but I think, I don't know. I tend to look at that and say, but that's just the natural outcome mm-hmm. of what love actually is. If, if we can come to some understanding or definition of love, other than it being some power or some frequency. But when you're vibrating at that frequency, isn't the natural outcome to act in that fashion? And then to also feel it. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. what I would think. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I 
I liked, I like your definition of that. I like that idea. Um, because I think, again, like you said, we've made love this very positive thing. We've made desire a very negative thing. And I think they should work hand in hand. Yeah. But that falls, I think, into that whole way of that dualistic thinking. Like if we have one and it's somehow an opposite or it's not the fully developed version of it, then it is oppositional and therefore negative. And it's like, or it's a collaborative thing (laughs) and we need both of them. And there's a balance there. And I think that's ultimately... I, wh- how I look at the the need for us is just how to right. balance things, not erase things or oppose things, but how do we just balance them? Right. Yeah. I like, he, he also, he talked a little bit about, um, I'm trying to remember where it is. Let me see here. I think I have it. I have it in my notes. I'm looking to see what page it's okay. Um, he, he was referencing somebody else's writing the, the radicality of love and he said, and the author's name was Horvat. And he said, Horvat also writes of the challenge when love and sex become habit and routine. Yeah. And when our views become, and, and when our views become accepted without reflection. And that, that kind of stuck out to me as that it's become rote and repetitious. Um, it's become habit, tradition. And that is what we've done with sex, love, you know, all of these things. And then that's why we easily dismiss their importance. Because we've yeah. lost our wonder for them, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, when they're supposed to be wondrous. Yeah. I think that we, yeah. And I think, God, did he talk about it? I can't remember. Or maybe we talked about it. But this idea of a pleasure deficit. Like there's mm-hmm. this pleasure deficit that is just like overarching everything right now. And we've confused what pleasure is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And you, the habit of sex, I, I think about even in like when I'm watching Netflix, a sex scene comes on and you're like, it's the same damn sex scene I've seen a million times. <laughs> and half the time it. <laughs> and, and half the time I'm like, it's freaking irrelevant. Like it doesn't yeah. why is it even here? What does this have to do with anything? And it's just like a part of the daily bloop of productivity for yeah. so many. And it, yeah, it it's lost its wonder and it's on. And and we've lost sight of what is supposed to be filled mm-hmm. that fills us with wonder and what is supposed to be awesome. And it's really the simple things. Right. And 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 sex is kind of that simple thing. It doesn't have to be complex, but we've overstimulated it and made it complex. And then it's good become point. redundant. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, because we are so overly sexualized in everything, society all around us is overly sexualized. You're right. It becomes almost a, a sensation of being numb to it mm-hmm. um, so that we just go through the motion and, and we forget about the wonder of it and what it's supposed to represent and how we're supposed to experience it. Um, you know, and I think back on my own history and I, I realize, of course, I, you know, I had a damaged viewpoint, but at the same time, it, it just never seemed to be all that important or it was never touted as being all that important other than for the obvious. Oh, if you're going to have children, you have sex, that's that. But it was never about the enjoyment of it or, you know, the intimacy that it should have brought to the relationship. It was always just routine. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that's sad. And I think that that is something I lament now looking back uh, over the years of my life and realizing I've missed out on a lot of things because I allowed myself to be numb to it um, mm. and to lose that wonder for it. And, and that's deeply upsetting, you know? And I, so I think he, he brings up a lot of things about 
what it's supposed to look like, the wonder of it, or at least he drew it out in me. Maybe that's just where my mind went. I don't know, yeah. but you know, I mean, he even, you know, he talked about the Me Too movement and he talked about uh, pretty much kind of our old binary ways of looking thing at look, looking at things and power dynamics and all of that. And there is so much tradition behind how we view all of those things that often as women, we're kind of left out of that discussion almost. Yeah. And I feel like we have a lot more to say on this. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. Than we've ever been given the opportunity to do. So it's, it's an interesting time. You, you know, he talked about, I remember at the beginning of the book, he was talking about um, his first expression uh, or his first experience of hearing about Jesus. Do you remember that? And yes. it was some chick he met, it was, she was a hippie. Uh, and he, she went back, to, he took, he went back oh, to her yeah. house with him, and all the hippies lived there. And before, while she's naked and they're getting ready to have sex, he, you know, she asked if she can pray with him. And this was like his first introduction to Jesus. And I thought, wow, how interesting is that? <laughs> <laughs> I know that's, that's quite an opening, <laughs> but then maybe that's not so bad because it kind of took away, you know, the negativity Yeah, that's often associated with sex, I guess. I don't know. I just thought, it, I, but I was like, that's a very hippie thing to do. If from my experience with hippies when I was a kid, so. <laughs> yeah, praying may, may this, may this coitus be blessed upon us in abundance <laughs> in the lubrication. And the explosions from exactly, on that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but I think it's funny that, you know, that, that he went back and said, hey, this is the first time I heard about Jesus. And I thought, how ironic is that? <laughs> I wonder how the church feels about that. <laughs> he was introduced to Jesus through sex and with a hippie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a little unorthodox, but okay, sure, whatever. <laughs> you know, I also kind of appreciate the weird irony where he's talking about sex, but he talks about death so much too. Yes, yes. And at first I was like, um, sex, death, okay. But then I <laughs> halted and I remembered that the word for orgasm in French right. means right. a little death. And a I little thought, death. <laughs> He he likes French philosophers, maybe yes. he has, but and I think that's what it was. But I mean, we often don't think about that, and also how death and sudden change or loss in our life can actually impact our sexual lives too. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, I sure. just kind of loved how he tied that in, and now I know he also teaches on sexuality and kind of a positive embodiment of sexuality too. Mm. So That's I think good. I can understand why he kind of throws this in there with you too, to give you another component of the sexual dimension to see that it's not all about physical stimulation and gratification and pleasure, but it's also about sometimes like an internal death and loss and death in life right, and right. what it can, what it can, how it can impact you and kind of like all of the dimensions of your life. Yeah, exactly. It's very interesting. I mean, he, um, it, it kind of shifts a little bit on this, on the topic, but since you brought up death, do you remember when he talked about, um, suicide? Yeah. I, I found that very profound, uh, from a psychological perspective. Um, he was talking, he mentioned somebody else saying that suicide was actually impossible. Yeah. Simon Critchley. Yes. Crit yeah. And I was like, I had to stop and think about that for a minute. But then he went on and I actually have the quote right here. He said he, uh, this gentleman, Simon Critchley derived his view from Freud. Um, but he said, suicide is impossible because the melancholic person experiences a division between who they are and an aspect of themselves that's been lost. And he calls that the hated other. 
The person who dies by suicide is ultimately not themselves, but rather the hated other. This is not suicide, but murder of the hated other. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. There's something uh-huh. to think about. Really, it is. And I mean, I sat with that too. And I was kind of like, what the actual? Yeah. Because, I mean, obviously, you know, again, traditional teaching on suicide, especially from a religious perspective, is it's a sin, first and foremost, that you're going to yeah. go to hell if you commit suicide. But, you know, and then as I, I began studying into the psychological realm, you know, obviously suicide is a result of, of mental illness. Yeah. It, it's you trying to, you know, reconcile something within yourself. And so reading that, I was like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. You literally are not yourself. Yeah. You, you, it's, he's right. It's not suicide. You're not killing yourself. You're, you're trying to kill that other part that just happens to be associated with you. And I thought, wow, that I could spin on that for a long time. <laughs> I, I know. And I thought if other people like kind of like looked at this and held this view, how much more compassion could we extend yes, to people? And, you know, the people who have lost others from suicide, because I know how heinous people can get about it and they can throw oh, their sure. religious condemnations. And you think, I have no idea what was going on in that, that person's mind, but right. condemnation is the last thing you need to throw to it. Absolutely. And- yeah. It's devastating. I, I think about that. And I think, you know, often, at least in my traditional background, anybody that dealt with depression, um, or anything like that, it was considered demonic, um, you know, there had to be an outside reason for it and that you just needed to have enough faith to deal with it. When the reality is it's very internal, it's, it's very psychological. And, and so if, if we were able to have the, you know, the, um, the perspective in the moment, if somebody was considering suicide to stop and rationalize and say, okay, what part of me am I hating right now? And learn to deal with that. Yeah. And to reconcile that rather than to just say, I don't want to be here anymore. But of course, that's difficult in the moment, yeah. you know, or w- within that time frame. Um, but certainly as people that are, you know, working in the mental health field or whatever, dealing with people who are suicidal, maybe that's something that should be kept in mind. Yeah, I agree. That what is, what is the part of this person that they're rebelling against, that they're trying to disassociate themselves from? Mm. And, and how do we treat that? rather than just trying to dissuade them from suicide. Yeah. I, so yeah. I, well, and you know, some in some avenues, the way they are treating that is with LSD and mushrooms and psychedelics. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, just to throw that out there. Yeah, I know. Now, I'm not, if I'm outing you, I'm sorry, but I think you outed it yourself on Facebook with that. But you you did work with that for a little bit, or at least tried it or experimented uh-huh. with it, correct? Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And did you find it to be overall a positive experience or? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. It was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So like I had so many thoughts. So one thought was, okay, this is what they need to give to women who experience low libido and low sexual oh. desire. Okay. And then another thought was, this is precisely what someone who is suffering from depression needs to experience because the feelings are so beautiful and amplified. I mm-hmm. thought this is what people, when, what I was reading a book, um, it was, um, um, the immortality key. Um, and, and one of the guys that wrote the forward to it, he's like this historian and an archeological historian, I believe. And he was on Joe Rogan and he was talking about it. And he said, if he said, what we should do is before anyone wants to become president is they must experience 12 trips hmm. with 
with psychedelics. And I thought, God damn it, you know, like that's absolutely true. These people need to be, it just pulls you into another realm of seeing the world and you bring that back with you. And I, all, all I can say is I've experienced for certain is like this overall reduced calm. And I have less of an inclination to be reactive, although I'm still a little bit. And I just feel like I can be quiet and chill and watch. And mm-hmm. uh, my opinion is not all that necessary. And it's just, yeah, it's amazing. So, hmm. yeah. Well, it was funny. Not too long ago, um, I had dinner uh, with one of my with one of my kids, my youngest son. And I don't even remember how we got on the subject, but he brought up the subject of of different drugs that he had tried, and I had no idea. Uh, and of course, you know, my kids were always raised, you know, very conservatively in church, the whole deal, same way I was raised. And, but we're very open about things now, you know, we try to be. And so, yeah, he was telling me and I'm like, well, wait a minute. I didn't know anything about this. What did you try? And he was like, yeah, you know, I tried acid. Uh, I tried mushrooms. I tried LSD. I was like, what? <laughs> I was freaking out. I'm like, oh my God. And I'm wrestling with myself. I'm like, whether, should I feel upset about that? Or, you know, I mean, he's a grown man, but still I'm his mom. Um, and he told me he had some of the same experiences. However, he did have, I forget which one it was that had the negative effect on him. I think it was mushrooms. Probably. Um, That's what he had a really, really bad time. Yeah. Really, really bad time. And he goes, I realized in the middle of that one. Yeah. I'm not really interested in doing this again. Yeah. (laughs) I said, okay, well, problem solved. I don't have to be mom or, you know, caution or anything because you know, like everything inside of me was screaming to do uh, because I was just trying to understand like, okay, so what was it you were looking for in that? And, and his, you know, what he said, his feedback to me was, I I wanted to know what the experience was like. I wanted to understand what people talked about. Yeah. And so I think, I think that is, oh boy, this might be a controversial statement. I think that's a healthy curiosity. Yeah. I just get a little nervous about the commission of it. Um, Yeah. And because of all the things that we've always been told about drugs, or at least it was, my life was threatened if I tried drugs. So I have a pretty strong reaction to all of that. But I, I do think there's a healthy curiosity that goes along with experiences like that, that could be beneficial. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, curiosity itself, don't we encourage our kids to be curious, but then we're like, wait a minute, are you being right? too curious? <laughs> but I agree. It's, it is. And, you know, my parents basically told me what every drug was like. Hmm. And so I had this whole like menu description before I ever tried anything. And it was like, I was like, I remember them saying that was cool. Don't do that. That one will fuck me (laughs) up, you know? And so when I would be offered the plentitude of drugs, I would be like, nah, nah, nah. And I always said, nah. Um, And then no joke. My son called me one night while he was tripping and he was telling me about it. And I'm like, oh. I feel so excluded. Like, why oh, didn't you? I'm like, why would you do this without your mommy? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I also didn't get to have fun as a kid either. You know, right. like I was a mom right away. So like, I look at it now, like I am so much more mature. I, I think I am going into it intentionally too. And that's what a lot of people are doing now. I mean, Silicon Valley is like full of microdosing and acid yeah, tripping I, and all of right. it. And, and it's, it's creating amazing technology and enormous productivity and it helps people overall with efficacy and it helps with depression and anxiety and PTSD. Right. And and it does help with sexual trauma. So there's so many benefits. Mm -hmm. And so I think like when you're older and you have more information, I would encourage it more. I mean, obviously I don't want my kids like thinking this is something they should do every weekend. 
Right. And um, there's always that, right? Because, I mean, our kids start liking shit and then they, like, gaming. <laughs> like, and then they just never stop. And you're like, are you right. going to be like this with the drugs? Like, come on. Um, but, yeah, I think we should encourage the curiosity. And, like, you know, it, it's hard, too, because, like, my kids tell me about their sexual curiosity and their explorations. And I'm like, okay, I'm taking it all in. I'm just going to breathe real slow through this because part of me is like, oh my God, I would never. And the other part of me is like, I'm so jealous. Right. right. Oh, no fair. Well, because you're at war with the part of you that's mom and the part of you yes. that's just another woman and mm-hmm. trying to, you know, disassociate from mom to see what the advantage might be. <laughs> Yes. And it's hard to disassociate from being mom, even when they're yes. grown. So yes. <laughs> no, right. It's hard to disassociate from mom for just a couple hours to like have yes. sex. So it's like, that's yeah. a whole new level of mindfulness that I'm just not at yet. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's funny now because my youngest son and his wife live with us, you know, we've moved to Tennessee and they're here with us. And, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm much more, I'm much more apt to leave the door open at night now and not care. Yeah. Um, Cause when they were little, of course, you know, you're like, Oh my God, the worst, and cause that happened to me. The worst thing that could happen is them walking in on you. Yeah. You know, and, and I remember that happening when my oldest was five and, and he still remembers it. So that's mortifying. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but now I'm less inclined to care, <laughs> you know, to try to not be, you know, you should be quiet. Why? Why do I need to be quiet? He's an adult. He can get over it. You know? <laughs> so it does, it does make for some uncomfortable glances a- a- occasionally. Um, <laughs> but you know, you do at some point they get old enough. You do separate yourself from it. You're like, yeah, whatever. You know? Yeah. You're my yeah. kid, but you're also an adult. So just get over it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not saying anything about you, what I hear from you. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it doesn't make any difference, but yeah, it's difficult to, to balance those two roles out and and to allow ourselves to express some of these things that he's talking about, you know, for our, from our personal perspective. Yeah. I agree. Because we haven't had that in our lives or our role has been such that we've not allowed that in our lives for so long. Um, which if I was going to say there's a downside to parenthood, I think that's part of it is that you're constantly living for that other person and not for yourself. Yeah. Um, that sounds selfish. I know it does, but <laughs> everybody always says that, but I can't help but wonder if we're not treating ourselves as we would treat our neighbors, are we even doing it right? Like, because oh, I right. thought, right. You know, like love yourself first. Right. Right. And then you'll, you know, or both or do it together or something or figure it out, but you have to have yeah room for yourself. That's, and I see women struggle that with that more than anyone is like, oh sure, you know, men don't have a problem sitting down and gaming for seven hours for themselves. And they're like, self-care. and women are like, I feel guilty if I sit down for two hours and read a book. And you're like, why he's still gaming? Like, what right. are you feeling guilty about? <laughs> I, again, I think it comes back to those traditional roles, Yeah, you know, that, that we're supposed to be, you know, taking care of children and providing the household and the meals and all that. And, and, and so if we're not doing all that, and because it is a large job, if we're not doing that, then we feel guilty somehow. It's been ingrained in us to feel guilty mm-hmm. over that. Um, but right. I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm all for sitting down for a few hours and just reading a book. I do that way more often now. Obviously, I don't have little kids anymore, so I have that yeah. time. But, but I do it. I still find myself feeling guilty for that sometimes. Like, I should really be doing something else, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, and I that's think bad. That's that productivity programming. I think we all suffer from though. Cause I noticed oh, yeah. that too. 
me and Corey, like he had the weekend off, but he still felt like he had to go do shit. And I'm like, you get <laughs> one weekend off every six weeks. What are you doing? Just sit down. Right. And it's like, we have it ingrained that productivity equals like success and good people. And it's like, even on our days off, we can't just chill out and yeah. do nothing because, oh my God, what if, what if somebody finds out I did nothing? I'm so <laughs> horrible and lazy. And that doesn't, that doesn't contribute to the economy or to the greater good. Right. And it's like, right. man, but where do we get our rest and peace from? Hello. And our pleasure. Again, we have a pleasure right. deficit, but yes, we have a product. Much. We're overstimulated with productivity. It's yeah. Yeah. Well, have you, um, I know you've listened to Brene Brown mm-hmm. um, and she talks about, uh, she mentioned play research. Oh yeah. And yeah. at one point she thought she was the only one that knew about it. And she thought it was good. She goes, this is it. I'm going to revolutionize the field. And she said, she didn't even realize there were play researchers out there at that time, but trying to identify, especially for somebody is that, that has that driven personality, trying to identify what play actually looks like is somewhat difficult. Yeah. Um, and because there's such a strong sense of duty and responsibility built into people like that, it's very difficult to get them to play, even if they can identify it. Yeah. Um, and I would, I, I would identify as one of those people. Um, I find it very hard to play, but I've gotten better at it because I kind of just got tired enough to say, I don't give a shit. If anybody's unhappy, I'm going to go read a book for a while. And you know what? <laughs> I'm going to read a book that nobody else would think it was okay for me to read. I'm going to do that because that's what I want to do. Yeah. You know, and we don't do what we want to do anymore. We do what's right. expected of us. Yeah. But he, I mean, like you said, it, when he's talking about uh, there, the chapter he has on capitalism on drugs mm. um, and he, but you bring up the, the psychedelics, but to me that felt like it played into that idea of play almost. Um, yeah. The, introducing that into your life. Now I don't, I'm going to, tell you without a doubt in my mind, um, there's no way I'm going to go do that just because I have an issue with control. And I think everybody knows that. <laughs> so it freaks me out to even think about it, but I can see the benefit. And, and you know what, that's what he's saying. Uh, he has a quote here, the counterculture's embrace of hallucinogens shouldn't be dismissed. Yeah. And so, because he's saying there is a spiritual side to that kind of stuff. There is a play side to that kind of stuff. There is an, 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 an not enlarging. That's not what I'm looking for. Uh, expand an expansion of the mind. Yeah. Um, that could be beneficial, but we've demonized it and, and said it's not acceptable. And instead, maybe again, looking back at his example of, of hearing G- about Jesus the first time because of sex, maybe this is how somebody finds God. Exactly. I mean, you've heard, I've heard lots of people ex- express that, you know, that on drugs, they feel closer to God or they feel more open to the idea of God. Yeah. And I mean, some people say that when they have sex, they feel closer to God. Right. Right. And we're like, wait, that's the wrong way to be close to God. (laughs) How do you know? Like, maybe that's how that person is supposed to get to God and supposed to meet God. Because I think that the other thing, too, that you hear is common in these people that can understand how to find God in play in these different ways that we play can Mm -hmm. then figure out how to find God everywhere. I mean, it's right. a gradual progression from playing and and pleasure and, and seeing God in those things to then oh wow look at God's everywhere right right but you, again it uh, it becomes almost practice to understanding that mm-hmm. and and like you said so as you're you're evolving through each one of these things and allowing yourself to find God in the enjoyment of these things you're right eventually it leads you to see that God is in everything 
And, but it, but it takes that little bit of exposure at a time to kind of get there. I think sometimes, yeah, depending on the person, of course, and their personality. Yeah. Um, And like, not everyone's going to find God through a psychedelic. I mean, some, I mean, God, I'm sure my husband just finds God every time he's in a damn tractor. I mean, that's where he gets high, <laughs> you know? And some people are like that, or people really do get high from running or hiking, or yeah. there are those crazy people that can fold their legs and go ohm all day. They oh, get yeah. high. I don't get high that way. So I don't either. You know? so. <laughs> so, but the it doesn't point, work for me. I say get high, but the way you want to get high, like whatever gets you high, that's good. And right. Then, that's just the way people experience God. And it doesn't have to look like anything. It can look like everything. Right. Well, you know, I mean, now I'm going to mention somebody I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, um, but he was a part of my journey and that's John Crowder. And, and one of the things that, you know, that he's most demonized or known for is the whole toking the ghost thing. Um, and of course that really upset a lot of traditional Christian, uh, Christian people that, oh my God, he was talking about drugs with God, you know, and, yeah, but they don't have any problems saying, oh, you know, I, I don't know that they would use the terminology getting high on the Holy ghost, but they have those experiences and they don't see a problem with the experience. It's just the terminology that's being used. Yeah. And or the ecstasy I find that God. Yeah. I find that interesting because maybe it's, if we can just allow for the terminology and understand we're talking about some of the same experiences, we could get rid of the demonization of some of this stuff and say that maybe there's benefit here just from listening and understanding one another, you know, and, and learning from one another's experience with it. Yes, exactly. I'm on board with you there. That's the, I think that's the only way we can really expand our view on the world is we have to listen to the experience of others and do everything we can to not invalidate the experience of others. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, you know, we have a tendency to want to shut one another down so that our viewpoint is presented and because there's not enough space for both viewpoints, you know, right. There can only be one. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's again, and that's an unfortunate thing because that actually goes against everything we know about education at its Mm. core. You know, exposing ourselves to things that we disagree with is important because it teaches us why, first of all, why we disagree with it. Yeah. Um, it gives us better information or it actually opens our mind up to understand something that maybe we didn't before, which, you know, is, is still beneficial. And it absolutely is. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's- oh, so we've turned this whole conversation into sex and drugs. Maybe let's talk about some rock and no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Is there, so let's go back. Let's go back to the book. Cause that's what we're supposed to be talking about. So, yeah. And, and yeah. we are, we are, we are. About that, but, yes. Um, all right. What else, what else struck you with the book? Um, I liked, um, Oh, Dylan play fucking loud. Yes, I agree. So <laughs> that was, let me see if I can remember what page it was. On. I know. That's what I was looking for it too. Cause I just saw it a few <laughs> minutes ago. Um, that was just that, that whole kind of mentality I just love. And I feel like that's what I've been called into trying to get comfortable with too, is I have it. I kind of get scared about being loud and I always kind of pull back a little bit and I'm like, fuck, Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have done that. And then I want (laughs) to go real silent. But so this chapter to me was just about realizing that sometimes our fuck ups can lead to something really great. Right. And I just have a genuine appreciation for that. It's kind of like just, you know, seeing 
seeing suffering as grace and seeing every problem as an opportunity. It's that kind of spin on things where you take the good and you turn it or take the bad and turn it into something good. And that chaos is a reminder of impermanence. And I really dive with that because I'm learning to do that to kind of let go of certainty and absolutism and, and, and realizing that just it's all temporary. Mm. Yeah. Well, he talks about in that same section and I found it, it's, um, page 45 is where that starts. Um, but he talks about, uh, the idea that, where is it? I just lost my, my quote. Uh, we betray ourselves when we allow external pressures to limit us. Yes. And I, again, that's another one of those little stabs at me that I felt it. It was like, how often have I betrayed myself because I was worried about something that somebody else might think. Yeah. You know, I I've disallowed my own expression or of myself or what I enjoy because somebody else may not like it. And we see that play out all the time, every day. Um, you know, and, and I've, I've actually called other people on it, but I'm just as guilty. The idea of acquiescing to somebody else in order to keep the peace instead of holding your sacred ground and saying, this is what I think. Yeah. And that's difficult to get well, to that. Well, for some people it's difficult. It's difficult for me. Cause I'm a people pleaser. Um, yeah. I know other people have a, you know, a stronger personality type or whatever that may not have as, that difficulty, but you hold your ground pretty well. I think, I think I know, you know, what's funny is though, one of my friends actually called me out and told me that I was cooling off and losing my fire. And I just kind of went, really? <gasps> yeah. And I was like, well, I mean, part of me disagreed with him. And part of me agreed with him. And so I felt like that too. Like, I felt like, I don't even know what the, whose expectation it was that I felt like I was trying to meet, but mm-hmm. I did start to feel that way. And I think that, ha- I think we just cycle through those phases too. And mm-hmm. that we find ourselves getting caught up in living into the, the expected image that other people have created for us. Oh, for like, sure. You know, and there you don't want to disappoint them and you don't want to let them down. And, or even sometimes I get into a comparative problem where I'm like, oh, my husband lately has been so patient and so giving lately. And I've been like, not any of those things. And so I better start doing something different so I can be more like him. But then mm-hmm. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being patient or more understanding, but right, my right. level and frequency on that is always going to be different. And so we can beat ourselves up a lot when we feel like we're not living up to that standard that we create for ourselves. And it's a really right. dumb thing that we do, but I mean, we're all guilty of it. And Oh, for sure. You know, it's I'm a just- huge perfectionist. I, I have <laughs> huge standards for myself and I'm constantly berating myself for what I perceive as me missing them. So it's, yeah. I, again, I still think a lot of stuff comes back to personality. Um, I'm in yeah. awe of people that don't seem to struggle with those things, but again, they may have some very, well, first of all, very different experiences in their life, but certainly different personality. Yeah. And I think that plays so much into it. It's one of the areas I'm really interested in is, is how we see the world based on our personality. And mm. yeah, we're, some of us are really, really shitty to ourselves, um, about a lot of things. <laughs> we really are. We yeah. really are, but that's, and, and, you know, sometimes we don't realize that the things that we're really hard on ourselves for are the things that we really do need to work out, but we just haven't figured yes. it out yet. Right. Right. <laughs> well, and, and then the other thing that goes along with this though, is 
sometimes we just change our minds. Yeah. Like you're saying your friend pointed this out to you, but it could just be a different phase in your life, or it could be that you've changed your mind about something. That's growth. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I agree because I, and that's kind of like what I do. I know that frustrates a lot of people is I always change my mind about stuff <laughs> and people are like, no, you can't do that. And I'm like, yes, I can. It's called repentance. It's what I'm yep. doing. Yep. And, my mind. and I'm okay with that. Like I won't cling to stuff. I'll pick up an idea and I'll be like, yep, I'm gonna carry this idea around. But <laughs> I like when the new ideas come. And I think that frustrates other people more mm-hmm. so because and that could be where a lot of a lot of my criticism comes from. And even with my friend too, I mean, I appreciate that he will call me out sometimes and he was right about some things. Like I head back down on some ideas and issues that I was wrestling with because I just didn't want to mm-hmm. deal with them. And sometimes we do do that. But right. other times, yeah, I feel like, like I said, I'm I'm finding more of an inner calm lately. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to sit back and literally listen to other people's opinions. I've shared mine, you know, and sometimes we go through those breaks too, where we're like, I can be quiet and just, I can be the student right now and let everyone else be the teacher. And then I'll pick back up and be the teacher. And we can say, we're always the student, always the teacher, sometimes Mm -hmm. at the same time and sometimes not at all. But I like the cycle of it all. Well, even sitting back and, and listening, doesn't necessarily denote that, that you're not teaching, mm-hmm. you know, or that you're not learning. I mean, listen, we have to listen to other people. Otherwise we're, we're, uh, I don't know. The only word that comes to mind is, is a gong in our own head of our own ideas. Yeah. you know, It's just, that's all we ever hear is our own ideas. And it's only when we're quiet and can listen to somebody else and allow them to draw out something that maybe we haven't considered before that, the that there's really any kind of education going on or learning happening inside of us. And I think there's wisdom in that. Yes. You know, and again, season to season, I mean, we we're ebbing and flowing through different seasons. So you're right. Maybe for a while we're the voice that's ma- having the discussion. And then after a while we're the one that's learning and listening. Yeah. And that, it doesn't yeah. mean less of a person or less knowledgeable or less of an expert in our field or anything. It just means that we're capable of, sharing the stage, so to speak. Yeah. 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 And I mean, cause sometimes we can, and I think a lot of that for me, that's where a lot of, uh, my own challenges stem from is I suddenly go, you've been awfully noisy, Danielle. Can you be quiet? <laughs> you know, like, because you will flood yourself. If you feel like you have to share your opinion on everything, then suddenly you're sharing your opinion on everything. And then right. do you ever have time to not be opinionated? And do you, are you always being forced into a corner of like, I'm on this side or that side? And I think that entangles right. us in a dangerous game of my ideas are better than yours then. And I don't right. want to get caught up in that. So well, and it yeah. becomes yeah, it becomes a competition almost. Yeah. Um, and I can't stand competition at all. No, see, I'm very competitive. So <laughs> and so I'm so anti. Like I have like rules in my house. I'm like, that sounds like comparative language, and we're not doing <laughs> that. You know, like I just I have because one of the things that I'm working on for myself is I'm constantly feeling compared to others. And right. so for me, I, I need to take the comparative language out of my own, you know, out of my own usage and I need to reduce it because that's the only thing that really helps us open up to the possibility of that allness and oneness yeah. is yeah. if we can start removing 
the things that divide us or separate us. And so yeah, that's a great my struggle though, too, because I do do that. I'll be like, you're not like me. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Not like me. <laughs> so therefore they're icky. Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of wisdom in that idea of separating yourself from comparative language and because I live with comparative voices in my head all the time. Um, I mean, a lot of what I do breeds that, but, um, I do that naturally as well. And it, you're right. It's, it's not healthy. Um, because quite honestly, we usually end up on the short side of the stick as yeah. far as our comparison goes. And that's not, it's not healthy for us, you know, for self-confidence or, or our self-image or anything like that. Yeah. So I probably should work on taking that out as well, but <laughs> I don't know that I will, but maybe one of these days, baby um, steps, know, baby steps. <laughs> um, well, we're running out of time real quick. The last thing that he talks about, of course, is religion. And of mm. course, now he is this instructor at uh, Fuller Seminary. Um, and, and one of the things that I, that I picked up from this, um, I was when he was talking about darkness. Mm. And he talks about Paul's conversion and he's like, Paul's conversion is most often presented in terms of light by those who speak for God. After all, that's how we tend to present our religious conversions. We come to the light, things are enlightened or revealed, the scales fall from our eyes. But in the story of Paul's conversion, he is struck blind first and he begins with three days of darkness. Um, and I found that kind of fascinating to think about because there is that period of darkness or not understanding before we're exposed to light, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I that, like that idea because it's easy to get lost in the darkness and feel like this is a forever kind of feeling or I'm never going to understand. But what if that's just part of the process? The confusion. Yes. Yeah. What if we have to be in the confusion be so that we can have clarity in the end? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I loved that he talked about that because I've often wondered about that too that idea of that blindness, because in all honesty, that's one of my greatest fears is I'm claustrophobic. So any kind of darkness is, mm. is difficult for me to, uh, to think about, but what if that's just part of understanding light is, is having that experience so that you know the difference. Yeah. Or at least that's what it said to me. I don't know. No, <laughs> any ideas? I, you think? <laughs> no I'm with you on that. And you know, what, we have so many different um, understandings of what darkness is, but so much of it is sure. that negative attachment. And, you know, my daughter, she's always funny. She's, she's like been this gothic chick since like before. <laughs> like, I don't even know. It's like I bore her into gothic idealism and I didn't even know. <laughs> it. I struggled with that. Right. And she was reflecting it back to me in such a beautiful way that I never noticed it until later. But she was like, I'm your daughter. Like you love everything about me unconditionally. And I'm showing you this darkness. Why right. are you so embarrassed by it? Why are you humiliated by it? Why are you concerned by it? And I just remember looking back on that and realizing like, so interesting that the, the first person I really learned how to love showed me this pitiful darkness that I, I was so afraid of in her reflecting outward. Cause you know, right. people are going to talk about your kid and like, what's going on. And then later on she came out as bisexual and it was like all these components that I kept compiling on this. Oh, that's that part of that darkness. But right. what if we realized it was actually really beautiful and essential? Yes. Yeah. And, and again, that's, I think that's one of the things he said, um, that he said here in this, in this one chapter uh, he, he was talking about his own religious ideals, I guess. And he said, you know, of course they were formed from a very 
conservative place. And they were always presented as complete truth. But um, I love what he said here. He said, it didn't take long for it to fail me or for me to fail it, but it took me a while to address the failing. The failing of that particular form of religion, that initial collapse was perhaps more of an expansion. And to me, that's what you're saying there. The idea that we perceive this to be negative or dark, but what if it's just a part of the process so that we truly understand? And he even goes on further to say, um, I was forced to walk away or to dig deeper. It taught me an invaluable lesson. To stand still is to fall backward. It also taught me that there is no light without darkness. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot, I would guess, because it, it's something that, uh, that occurred to me, a lot of people from my religious tradition would look at that and say, oh, that's very new age thinking. Yeah. Because I probably would have thought that at one point too. Yeah. But it does make sense as part of the journey. I mean, even Christ was dead for three days and in yeah. darkness. So it's a part of the evolution of our changing our, you know, our understanding. And I, I don't know, that last part really spoke to me about, because much of the last few years, of course, within um, the ideas of deconstruction have felt very dark and lonely and, yeah. you know, negative. What if that's all a part of the process that it's the way it's supposed to be? Yeah. So that we have this beautiful experiment or not experiment, this beautiful um way of comparing these two things so that we understand the value of the light when we have it. Mm, yeah. And I and think about I that, like what you're saying with your daughter. Oh, there goes my dog. <laughs> wow. He is really loud. Um, no, but I think about that, what you're saying with your daughter, like you had these ideas, you know, that maybe would have seemed negative previously, but now may seem like a part of the beauty that's surrounding her. And I think that's great. Yeah. Well, and I think that's what we refuse to see. We see that ultimate darkness exposed or what we think of as darker or evil or negative, but I'm always like, okay, but why are we so limiting to think that that's all there is, right? right. It's a little yeah. bit of darkness. Like, right. and the reality is, is you can't have the darkness without the light. Right. But I, what do you say? He said that the blindness becomes a pathway to a new understanding. Right. And yeah, we have to go through a spiritual blindness. We have to go through a sexual blindness. We have to go through mm -hmm a social blindness, like in order to really start to see things. Right. And I think we're most scared of that because oh, yeah, blindness I think is bad. Yeah. But again, maybe those are the things that we should be leaning into, so to speak, because yeah. we understand that there is value on the other side of them. Yeah. That's why I always say like things like, I really like not knowing anything. And I think what he talked about, he points that out as Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard yeah. said too, is that We've, we come to find that like, we don't really know anything about anything. Right. And that's something we could learn to be more comfortable with. Like, well, why, da, 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 why is this? Da, 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 da. Right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. What, what kind of ideas do you got about it? Let's think on it. Like, right. we don't have to have the answers and the answers that we do articulate don't have to be quote unquote, right. We can just right. share ideas and then go from there. And that's part of the confusion, like not knowing and then right. just sharing ideas. And then what, I mean, mostly all we have is just presuppositions anyway. Right. Yes. <laughs> Cause we're well, always and, thinking and, in a future oriented sense yes. anyway. So what do we know? 
Well, again, you're talking about, and I, I'm positive you and I have talked about this at some point before, the idea that that certainty is equivalent to faith in most people's idea. And, yes. and in reality, faith is about not knowing. Yeah. And what if all of it is just supposed to be a conversation? Yeah. Never knowing 100% for sure. I know that's not an ideal situation for most people to consider, but I kind of like that idea in all honesty. Yeah. Well, everybody wants life to be math. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're right. That's a good way of saying it. You're right. We want it all yeah. to make sense and to, and to equal out to something when maybe the fun is just in trying to figure it out. Yeah. And expressing it in many forms that we can, you know? Yeah. Like through right. art. Like that's why yeah. art is, is crazy and and glorious as it is, because that's just another way that we're like, here's an idea I have about life. Right. And again, it's subjective. We're all going to see it differently. It's going to hit us differently. For some, it may not resonate at all, but, but something else will. And, and so instead of deciding that one is bad and one is good, what, why don't we just understand that all of them, there's just different perspective. Yeah. And it's when we really take that good and bad and good and evil and right and wrong out of it. So, I yes. mean, because yes, there are, there are parts of life that require right or wrong or, or true sure. or false. But when we're talking about things like even sex, God and rock and roll, there's right. no right answer. Like there's, there doesn't need to be a right answer and there doesn't right. need to be an evil component or an oppositional negative contra- right. contributor. There just needs to be these ideas that we're okay with going. Yeah. Okay. What's another one? Yeah. Okay. That's a good one. Let's, right. Let's and not be so absolute. But the reality is for the most of, for most of us anyway, we're very uncomfortable with saying, I don't know. I know. And we have to work on getting past it. I I think that's going to be really, really beneficial for us. If we, to be able to look at somebody and say, I don't know, and be okay with that response is, seems like the epitome of freedom to me. (laughs) But that's my perspective. So (laughs) let, I don't know, be your liberation. Yes, exactly. That's a book title or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, well, anyway, I'm so glad you got to come and chat with me about this book. I thought it was a really great book. And like I said, I, there's so much to think about and so many different little things in there that I was like, wow, that's yeah. something to really consider. And he's fun on Instagram too. You can find him at oh, okay. UK bloke, UK bloke. And he is always sharing his like art and stuff on there. So awesome. if, if the audience is interested in that, and sometimes he shares a little political views there. Yeah, that's cool too. Yeah. <laughs> it's a so, part of our life, unfortunately. So yeah. Um, but before we go, tell people where they can find your podcast and where they can find your writing um, and where they can stay in touch with you if they so choose to do so. Okay. Well, it's going to be a mouthful. There's lots. Okay. That's okay. Uh, recorded conversations is available basically wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, Podbean. Uh, I think I'm even on Amazon and Yahoo. So, okay. Um, and then I write for Pro- Patheos Progressive Christian. You can just find me under my name, Danielle Kingstrom. I am on Instagram and Twitter at D Kingstrom and Facebook, Danielle Kingstrom. And I'm warning you all that. <laughs> I am provocative. I am snarky. I am sometimes a little bitchy. And I am open-minded. So if you are not ready for that, don't follow me. Yeah. (laughs) Just save yourself. Yeah, it's going to cause you a problem. Don't do it. (laughs) But if you're good with conversation, you're good with questions, that's okay then. Yeah. And I love both. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, we had a couple other books that we we thought we might discuss together. Is that still sounds 
Okay. Did, um, did we'll, someone take, take the coddling of the American mind? They did. But as I think I mentioned to you, maybe we can all, all discuss it together. Oh, so, a trial um, Yeah. Something like that. We'll see. Yeah. I'll see if he's comfortable with that. He's, he's more of a quiet kind of person. So I'll see if he's comfortable with that. But, um, but there were some other ones too, that we had discussed that might, might be a good discussion as well. So I'll, I'll circle back to those as I soon as my head, as soon as my head's back on straight with all of my stuff going on and then we'll get it figured out. But I'm so glad you got to take time and sit and chat with me and it felt nice and it felt, it felt, uh, I don't felt know what's good. It just yeah. felt good, didn't it? Yeah. It I'm is. glad that we were able to reconnect and yeah. Start me working too. on the bridge and I'm, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate Absolutely. it. I'm glad you could be here. So with that, uh, if if you're interested in more of Danielle's stuff, please go and check out her um, her podcast and her writing. You won't be sorry. Um, thank you all for joining us on Bookish, and I would definitely suggest grabbing the book "Sex, God, and Rock and Roll." Catastrophes, Epiphanies, and Shared Anarchies by Barry Taylor. Um, if you are interested, and again, I would suggest this, Danielle actually interviewed her, uh, Barry Taylor on her podcast. And so I'm sure that's available for you to listen to if you want to get a little bit more in depth with the author himself uh, in his discussion with Danielle. So thanks again, Danielle. I appreciated it. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Michelle. All right. Good night, everybody. And thanks for listening. Thanks.